Hi, and welcome to Power of 10, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organizational transformation and onto changes in society and the world. My name is Andy Pollain. I'm a service design and innovation consultant, educator, and writer. My guest today is Douglas Ferguson, an entrepreneur and human-centered technologist with over 20 years of experience. He is president of Voltage Control, an Austin-based workshop agency that specializes in design sprints and innovation workshops. He's had several CTO roles at startups and was CTO at Twyla, where he worked directly with Google Ventures running design sprints, and now brings this experience and process to companies everywhere. He recently published his first book, Beyond the Prototype, which offers a six-step plan for companies struggling with the shift from discovery to launch, especially the post-sprint slump. Douglas, welcome to Power of Ten. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So before we get to the book, uh, it's interesting, or to me at least, that you've you've held CTO roles rather than design roles. And you've also got a pretty mixed background in, in terms of disciplines. I mean, I, I'm not casting aspersions on your, on your background. How have you ended up here? Yeah, it has been a varied career. And um, I think that's really a testament to my um, kind of spirit for continuous learning and always just being curious about what might the next chapter look like. And um, I did start off as a software engineer early in my career and got handed this lesson around, you know, technology for technology's sake is no good for anyone. And while we were really very proud of the technology we had built at at CoreMetrics and um, had amassed quite a nice um, array of customers, Omniture came in and just started to eat us for lunch. And it was really a better user experience that they were delivering, but uh, we just didn't have that language back then. Mm. And so as an engineer, I I took note of that. And um, as I became a leader in engineering and um, product, I started to, I was really focused on kind of um, how we assemble teams and get the most out of, out of the work we do. And um, since uh, there weren't really uh, product leaders in the organizations that I was joining. I was kind of wearing both hats. So kind of chief technology officer by title, but also holding this kind of chief product officer role and, and, and um, serving that function. Right. And so I had designers working for me and got to work with, um, got to hire and work with quite a many talented designer. And so I kind of got a design degree just by working alongside those folks and really kind of worshiping the, the awesome ways that they were approaching problems. But, but I mean, given that you're no stranger to the, the creative process though, right? Because you've also got this uh, music and recording background, right? Yeah, of course. I didn't, uh, that's a that's a great point. You know, um, my mother was a piano player and um, became, um, you know, really disinfatuated with music at a very young age and started playing in bands in high school and then um, was recording bands on the side uh, for hobby and, and, and college. And well, I guess you could call it even a part time job. I was, um, you know, massing equipment and doing various things like, um, uh, you know, sound reinforcement for concerts and recording bands and whatnot, and then slowly accumulated pretty much a professional recording studio. And so 
the uh, that's just been a labor of love, if you will. It's, it's really hard to 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 run a, a recording studio business just with so much amazing. We were just talking before this podcast about so much amazing consumer gear that's available. You can get these yeah. Yeti mics that sound so great for 150 bucks versus the the studio equivalent would be you know for that whole setup with the mic, the preamp, and and the converter. You know, we're talking five grand minimum. Yeah, I don't know if you listen to um, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, Broken Record podcast, and they were talking about. Um, uh, I can't remember who they were interviewing, but it was someone incredibly famous who was talking about um, you know when he set up a recording, he built a recording studio in his home in like the seventies or the sixties and stuff. When back then that was such a major act to do to have all of that kind of equipment in there. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a piece recently um, that I didn't expect to write, which was uh, it was about learning from Ed Sheeran because <laughs> um, my daughter kind of got into him. And then I ended up watching the the songwriter documentary. And one of the things that struck me then was how um, amazing it was that he was able to basically have a recording studio on the tour bus, at least good enough to do demos, recording studio on a, on a like they, um, his producer is scared of flying. So they took a, a ship across uh, the Atlantic and uh, they had a recording studio in there. And the, the ability to kind of just produce something very high quality kind of on the fly, but also very iterative. So he would sort of have the kind of bass track uh, roughly and then go, I think I've got a partial bit of a verse and just sort of looping the track around. He'd kind of drop that bit in and gradually they would sort of build it up incrementally. And I I obviously found lots of kind of parallels, obviously, with the design world. So let me try something on you, which is that when musicians go in for a recording uh, session, and particularly because they are often you know, booking a chunk of time that a recording session is really the musical equivalent of a design sprint. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, not everyone approaches it from that perspective, though, because sometimes when they're booking that kind of chunk of time, especially when you're talking musicians that are starving artists then you know they're they're trying to maximize that time so they've they've demoed a lot of stuff at home and kind of gotten everything ready so then then it then it yeah. really it counts right so they're in there to nail it which adds a lot of pressure and I mean and performance anxiety and you're not necessarily getting the most creative takes or um, and whatnot and so yeah. I as you were telling this um, story it really um, struck me just this iterative design process um, yeah around you know you know with the creation of the four track where people can kind of carry these things around and then, then that resulted in musicians like beck who are like four track musicians right mm-hmm. and, yeah, and, yeah, right. and it, it, it invented its own genre in the way and and the, the thing i'll say is that that comes to mind for me too is uh i really like to use the studio as an instrument yeah, um, yeah, and so it really comes alive as a creative process where um, folks that don't own studios and think of it more as a place to just go capture and document what you've done. They, yeah. I think, they think of the the studio quite differently. I think that was what was also interesting about Edge here in using his loop station was kind of just to really restrict his palette in many respects to, mm. to himself and the loops, and um, and then and you know what you were just saying about artists having to they have to really nail it. But they've done quite a lot of kind of prototypes, basically. The demos are the prototypes of the songs, right, up front. Absolutely. Um, and so they kind of roughly know they, they know the form and the shape and what they're trying to do is nail it on the day. But one of the things about having that kind of pressure um, is it, it forces you to kind of um, make decisions and move on rather than kind of sp- spend ages getting it perfect. And I think, you know, possibly second album syndrome is partly that thing of you now got the luxury of more time in the studio. And so you desperate to get it kind of perfect and and it never 
it never will be and so it kind of slumps absolutely and you know the uh, the other thing i'll say is i think that's one of the reasons why analog sounds so much better than digital because in the digital world you have endless options and um with with tape you know there's this whole notion of i gotta wait for the tape to rewind there's there's a certain amount of like meditation you have to do while you're waiting for that to happen and um and then you're maybe reluctant to to do another take if you know you it's an ordeal whereas like in digital you can just exhaustively just grind it until you take all yeah. the life out of it and so so i i agree there there's definitely a um there's like a notion of perfection that you know that is elusive and sometimes like those magical moments that weren't perfect are so much more meaningful or beautiful yeah that that's uh, that reminds me of um john morica who's a, a very well-known sort of uh, designer and artist and musician actually too he once said you know i used to really like it when computers were slower because whilst it was rendering our like photoshop <laughs> was rendering a blur or something like that you know i'd, I'd, I'd think about what i want to do next and I, de- I definitely noticed a thing that happened around the kind of early 2000s, I think, where a lot of, there were a lot of kind of conferences uh, about Flash and people kind of doing, the, you know, when the whole kind of vector art stuff and generative kind of vector art design and art was um, very popular, where it was all about the kind of speed that everyone could work at. And I, I remember at the time thinking that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because I feel like that it sort of got quite mindless. And, you know, arguably that's, I still kind of complain about this with with sprint culture, actually. So let's get back to sprints. It felt like a book that was one of those books that kind of uh, had arisen out of hard won experience. And and it felt like a kind of let me save you from some of the pain type of book. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. You know, I was on a quest to try and sort these things out for my clients. (laughs) And I was also a bit, you know, it's a little bit of imposter syndrome too. Early on, I was like thinking to myself, man, how did I mess this up so bad? And, um, and then when I started noticing that everyone does it, others were running into this and my clients were, it was happening to my clients. And then I was going to the sprint conference and realizing that I was hearing a lot of other people running into these issues. And, and then I think it's also the reason why hackathons are so horrible. Um, uh, (laughs) I mean, they're they're. I think they're the epitome of this, right? Because they're not, at least the design sprint tees it up in a much more interesting way. Mm. And there's much more hope that with, um, (laughs) that you can, you can land the plane, but you still, there's still a lot of intention and care that you have to take to this. And there's literally, literally no handbook of what to do after yeah that's true that is true and so um you've kind of you've split the book up into into these um six steps do you want to kind of just quickly go through them i really want to get back to the kind of the post sprint slump that you that you really start at um but Tell, tell us how you sort of came to those six steps yeah i was ultimately you're just thinking about the, all the things that i've would have gone back and done differently and then as I interviewed people and ran workshops around this concept, you know, it was the things that I just kept repeatedly hearing over and over again. And then just I started to kind of organize them into some logical categories and they kind of kind of fell linearly. And, um, you know, it's not a perfect science because um, there's definitely some steps that you could do all, all at the same time. But I think just from a mental model, it's nice to think from them as linear steps. And so I laid them yeah. out in that way. And in fact, I'm about to, I'm working on version two. <laughs> that's and, uh, version two is going to have, yeah, that's right. Well, it's funny that Beyond a Prototype was a prototype. Right. 
um, actually was uh, working on a book with a co-author, Karen Holst, and um, we are wrapping up that book now. It's looking like it's going to launch in right. April. We had so many questions about like how we wanted to handle different scenarios, and it really uh, I started to realize that a lot of those questions um, could only be answered in, in actually doing this, making a book, yeah. right? And um, so I thought, well, why don't I write a book and answer some of these questions? And uh, it turned, I was, it just turned into a much bigger project than I had anticipated. And I ended up just deciding, hey, this is a prototype. I need to get it out the door. So yeah, the, uh, I have a publisher now, so I'm, I'm looking at version two and I'm going back and I'm adding a new step. So I'll give you, give you a preview of that step even. Uh, so okay, yeah, one of the things, and I really struggled early with my first editor because we were kind of trying to decide whether to include this or not. And I kind of included it as like this design sprint 101. Mm. And um, I'm actually going to make it an official step in, in this new version. And it's called get, um, sorry, set the stage. Right. Right, right, okay. And so, and, and the thing we really struggled with was since this was about the design sprint slump, it's like, well, the y- your preparation and, and um, is before the slump, but I'm so adamant now because it's come up still so many times that the best way to avoid the slump is to not get in, in it or do things <laughs> yeah, that are going to yeah. minim- minimize it, right? Because yeah. the deeper you go, the harder it is to get out. Yeah. And there are things like picking the right decider. And, you know, that's one of the number one things I see people mess up with the design sprint is, um, you know, assigning that role to someone who doesn't really have the authority or someone who does have the authority delegating it to someone but not really delegating. <laughs> like, they just undo it later. So it's like, what's the point of doing all this hard work if you're just going to let people undo it? And you mean sort of asking, and, for, um, asking for input but then saying, well, I, I, that's, thanks for that, but I'm, I think we should do this in my experience. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, or I mean, well, so yeah. Now you're getting into <laughs> some some meeting science stuff, which I'm we're really passionate about right now. And it's like if you're going to have a meeting to make a decision, make make it very clear, set that expectation. If you're just collecting information and you're going to make the decision, make that clear. Yeah. The problem is when people don't make those intentions clear, and then you know go into the meeting, and then people, everyone has different assumptions. And yeah, no, that's, so um, no, let's come back to the meeting thing because I definitely want to. Uh, yeah, cover of course. It. Yeah, yeah. So the the thing I'll say is that the um, set the stage is so important and there's there's just things to think, consider and making sure you execute a great workshop in general and design sprints got it's even um, it's special components that you need to consider so just making sure those things are done correctly will just make sure that you come out with um, with the momentum that you need um, or that you should get and yeah. I'll say one one big issue is that it it's a five-day process. It's heavy artillery. You shouldn't be just throwing it around willy-nilly. And but when you when there is time to do it, and you're super convinced it's the right time, and you, it's easy to get hung up or caught up in this whirlwind of convincing people to do it, and, and the the people that you know hold the purse strings, mm. the even the decider, getting them on board, the participants, and so you spend all this time selling people on it, and then it almost takes on this life of its own, right? And um, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that the design sprint is not the whole thing. Yeah. It is just the first step in your journey. Yeah. And, but you spend all this time convincing people to do this stuff and you, and, and sometimes I think people oversell it and then they come out with all this momentum and then they don't know what to do with it because everyone's like been sold on the fact that, okay, well this is the, this is the thing. And it's like, well, yeah, but we gotta, we, got, we still have to support it afterwards. Right. 
And, um, and so understanding that and setting those expectations also, sometimes this work can, um, if it's, if you're really, um, focusing on something truly innovative and looking at what might be new possibility and unlock real potential, then there's, there is a chance that there's, will be no home for this thing, whatever it is that you create based on. Um, your business and the way it's structured. And so being open to that and being ready to engage those conversations is, um, again, just setting the stage, getting expectations in order so that once we're there and we have this momentum we're not used to experiencing, that we're going to at least anticipate it and be somewhat ready to deal with it. So that's that's the first and foremost thing, set the stage. Then you have to wrap up what you got to wrap up your work. So revisiting your any of the questions that you set forth for the design sprint, any new questions that surface during the user interviews, and um, anything any any insights that yield more new potential that you might need to get more clarity on. It's important to to iterate on the on the prototype and just to continue to learn. Mm. And then, then you need to think about what kind of uh, governance structure that the team that's going to be operating on this. Um, it, you know, there might be um, success and failure metrics. There may be you know modes of working. Like, are we going to follow an agile type process? A lot of times, these teams that are spun up around these kinds of projects aren't really governed. Um, by the same rules, you know, that the normal product team will be governed or, or whatnot. And so just making sure there's operating agreements on how we're going to make decisions and, and, um, and how we will do our work. And, um, can you give also, a, can you give an example of that? Cause you cover quite a lot of ground in, in, in just in that little bit of that, that switch between, yeah. um, the teams that, or can you unpack that a little bit? The teams who are doing the sprints are not governed by the same kind of rules or process either the team goes on to be doing or the the teams that they're then going to work with uh, are doing yeah so uh sometimes in larger companies you especially if you're doing kind of explorative type stuff and you're kind of harvesting potential kind of innovative type of uh projects then those teams aren't necessarily the teams that actually build product and launch you know they're not commercializing or are scaling up kind of products and so they may not have processes for for building and um and so how do you think about the the process that by which you're going to going to kind of build these things or or or, you know are you going to follow a kind of development sprints are, are they one mm-hmm. week long, two weeks long? Um, and, and the fact of the matter is, even if you have those processes, a lot of times these teams are constructed of cross-functional members from other teams. Yeah. And um, when they may, if you're anything like Spotify, where you know a lot, every team's allowed to kind of pick their best kind of preferred way of functioning, then some of these. Um, some of these rules need to be adopted. It's sort of like monopoly house rules, right? It's like <laughs> we need to uh, we need to disagree on how we're going to play the game together. Yeah, and um, and so it could be as simple as you know, are we going to do one week or two week sprints, or are we even doing scrum? Do we do stand ups, or, or what's the what's the culture around um, around how we govern ourselves and how we just how work gets done day to day? And on the decision making thing. There was um, specifically one example where the team that got put together um, didn't have a clear leader. There was someone from the engineering side and someone from the product side that were considered kind of co-leaders, but there weren't really clear 
um, expectations set around who and who was going to be the ultimate decider, and there's no tiebreaker, and and, mm. and two and two leaders, and um, and it created some really unfortunate dynamics, especially when you know the product leader's manager, the 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 senior vice president over product management. Um, came asking questions, you know, and they mm. they also didn't have success and failure metrics clearly identified. So when those questions got posed, there was no clear like way of indicating how well they were doing. There was no way to track, you know, progress, if you will. And um, and so when those tough questions came, it was really easy to start doing finger pointing because they didn't have really reliable stuff to lean on. Right. One of the things that I, I noticed about the book that I found a kind of really interesting, kind of actually sort of looking back at it when I was preparing for the for this podcast was you spend, I don't know, you've got Design Sprints 101 and then you go into, the, I'll talk through the chapters actually, you've got the post sprint slump, wrap it up, share your story, chart the course, expand the inner circle, cultivate the culture, get guidance. And then you've got your bonus chapter, which is splint, uh, sprint, sprint, sprint planning, which I'm guessing is the thing that was, will be setting the stage perhaps but mm-hmm. um the thing that struck me looking back at that sort of table of contents of those chapters was there's only really kind of i don't know two chapters that are actually about sort of doing the design work and the kind of creative process if you like a, a big chunk of this is is really about communication right? it's about how you know you're talking about how to share your story how to get people on course i mean it's planning too right but it a lot there's a lot of content in here about how to get people to um so there's things you were just talking about about communicating amongst themselves and making decisions but there's also a lot around um you know, how do you get other people on board? How do you gradually expand it? There's this lovely thing where you say to keep things bite-sized when you're cultivating the culture, to reduce the blast radius of your project and the potential for leadership, freak out moments, break the work into small manageable pieces. So there's a lot of stuff around that, which is about kind of how teams operate and agitate within an organization uh, more than actually kind of what you might think that a sprint, uh, a book about sort of design sprints is about, which would be, you know, how do you come up with the most amazing ideas and so forth? Yeah, it, you know, and it's definitely a kind of, I think, uh, speaks true to my background and my interests because, you know, I really focused on mm. how to help teams do their best work. And um, I'm kind of somewhat process agnostic yeah. and I'm a big fan of kind of what design sprints have made possible. Mm. And, but, um, I'm not really too concerned about how people the, the approaches they take within that framework. Even if we're doing a design sprint, right? Because they might they might they may have their own vision of, yeah. of how to approach the design. Yeah. And um, and to me, it's more about hey, can we can we use this as a tool to to have a conversation and to to get the room intelligence kind of flowing and humming and um, and build some momentum and then make yeah. sure that we're um, everyone's informed enough to to harness that momentum and keep keep it keep it moving because at the end of the day uh, you know it's uh, if we can drive outcomes it's kind of irrelevant how we get there yeah and it's the it's the sort of achilles heel i was talking to you and a few other people that we know about um this masters i teach over in, in switzerland and the thing i'm teaching is about leading conversations and it's my my colleague jan eckert who kind of came up with this thing said you know the one thing that is a really major part of working as a designer especially a designer inside an organization 
is being able to kind of communicate um, and communicate with other stakeholders and get them on board and stuff and communicate your ideas. And that's the sort of the thing you're not actually really taught at design school. You're taught a lot of process at design school and a lot of methods, and it's changing a little bit now. But um, but actually this stuff, I, like you, I think have probably a similar experience where I get asked to go and train a team and work with a team. And, you know, we do some method stuff, but actually it's sort of the conversations afterwards about, but how are we going to get, I can't convince this person to do that. And how do we get people to the higher ups or, you know, to how do we sell this upwards and so forth? And there's a bit where you say, uh, you know, is your company poised to promote, oh, know thyself, that's right. You know, is your company uh, poised to promote innovative entrepreneurial culture? And even if they say they're ready, do they really mean it? Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really kind of telling. Because uh, I think a lot of us have probably uh, been there, despite the language of innovation is kind of everywhere, but the actual practice of it kind of isn't. Um, and setting the preconditions for that to work is a lot harder than, I, I don't know, than some sticky notes. Um, so tell me about your, what's, you sort of got this interest in meetings. Um, I can imagine, like a lot of us have probably spent far too much time in really rubbish ones, uh, why that's come about. But um, tell me about uh, your, your view on, on meetings. And, um, you know, weathering the sticky storm, you said. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, um, just like anything when, when it gets overdone or, or misused or, or, um, it's, you know, it's almost like the design thinking equivalent of agile where if people, so many people just glom onto the practices, but don't understand the principles. Yeah. Yeah. So when I see someone writing user stories and it's basically they've just got the mad lib and they're just plugging in variables into the blanks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, man, that's not a user story. Yeah. You know, it's like, you're just, you're just filling in a, like a little form. It's like, how about we really think about like what's going on here and like create a dynamic story that we tell with the team that we can go to and get to a deeper alignment and understanding around, okay, now we're talking. Yeah. And so these sticky storms are the equivalent, right? It's just like, oh, let's just throw some post notes up here. We'll just do, we'll do some clustering and we got a workshop. And it's like, man, they're turning. It's almost like I, the sticky storm is the is the pathological version of bad meetings because they've taken <laughs> what can make a meeting. <laughs> they've taken what a, a meeting, what it could it could be amazing about a meeting, and turned that bad too. <laughs> why? Why does that happen? Do you think? I think it's just a lack of, um, it's laziness maybe. And, um, and also somewhat like a fear of, um, like an inferiority thing where they hear something and they don't want to, they want to appear that they know it and, um, without ma having any time to, to master it. Yeah. And then, so it's like, Oh, I see. I can do that too. Cause on the, on, so the thing is, is like simple things can be really powerful yeah. and, it, and that can be very surprising. And if people see the simple thing, that's, uh, that someone's taken a lot of time and care to, to make simple and, and they try to repeat it without really understanding the why, that's why we get into trouble i think as designs become more strategic and you know and moved or sort of mixed with business so much you know in that kind of situation i think it's one of the things that's happened is that the the craft if you like or the technology of of that strategic stuff is, is pretty simple right? writing 
things on a sticky note and sticking it on the wall doesn't seem like that's a thing where you look at and go, well, I, you know, I, I can't do that. Which, you know, if you're looking, say, like a traditional graphic designer or a musician doing something, someone who's not versed in that looks at that person doing those things and go, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm unable to do that. That person has a craft skill that I don't have. And I, I think part that it leads to this kind of conflation of because I know how to write on a sticky and put it on a wall, I therefore know how to, you know, I don't know, spot um, to, to cluster affinity cluster in a way that's intelligent or to spot patterns or to break things down and so on and so forth. So a lot of that part of that process and a lot of the kind of synthesis as well is um, seems very abstract from the outside um, and is almost invisible. And I think you don't, you don't get the kind of same evidence of, of craft that you, you do in those other kind of di- uh, disciplines or traditionally. And I think that's probably why some of those things go bad. So there's a two by two that explains what, uh, what you're describing. So, um, there's, uh, let's see, unconscious incompetence. <laughs> okay. And then you move into conscious incompetence. So you become aware of your incompetence. Mm. So then, then you're able to build skill and then you become consciously competent and then true mastery is when you're unconsciously competent. That's very nice. Where does that come from? Or is that yours? I don't, you know, I don't know the source of that. I heard it from um, a pure coach of mine as a model that he uses. Mm. And um, um, nice. yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I just totally came to mind when you were talking about this stuff. I was like, he's totally it, that model. <laughs> it, it sounds, um, I mean, it's very akin to systems, you know, thinking and, and complexity theory, you know, where you've got the classic, you know, known knowns and known unknowns and all of that oh, stuff. Yeah. You know, speaking of that, uh, I was thinking of Brian Eno a little earlier and um, because you were talking about, you know, the just the advent of people making mm. home studios and these things and just the mm, fact yeah, that yeah. Um, he, I, so I named my company after my um, obsession with synthesizers. Right. And I would always tell people how my, as I was programming my synthesizers, it was very similar to working with teams and just the complexity of, you know, making one change over here will have all these ripple effects through the system. Yeah. And um, so I would, I would, I just had this metaphor in my head of, you know, whenever I work with my synthesizer, it just felt very similar. And, and I'd actually sometimes solve problems with, with the the people problems that I had just as I was kind of patching these. And I, I think it just triggered interesting parts, similar parts of my brain. And I recently was watching a documentary on Brian Eno and I found out that he was, uh, he read the, the, that first book on cybernetics yeah, yeah. and that's how he developed his technique for music. And I thought it was really so fascinating. It made me love him even more because I was like, I, I, I arrived at a similar conclusions, but through using the synthesizer, probably maybe inspired by him and others, but he actually developed this whole methodology by the, the, the inverse way. Right. 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 <laughs> I think it's, um, I mean, this is why I was kind of interested in your background, because I think that um, having some other thing uh, that you're, you know, deep into, and and I'm very sure it does kind of cross wiring in your brain where you go, well, no, I I see that in a way, I can't not see that through this other lens. I mean, I studied film um, and so filmmaking, and I, I still see a lot of ways of working like that and i still see a lot of parallels and a lot that can be learned from from the way filmmakers work reminds me of uh creativity incorporated with um ad catmull talking about the sharing the ugly baby early on and on all the pixar films 
such a such an awesome book, one of my favorites. It's a it's highly recommended read. So I'm um, I've got a question for you actually, which is how do you deal with one of these questions? You probably experience clients or, or teams or stakeholders have said, listen, we want to do a sprint, but we only want to do it for two days. Or <laughs> can we do it for one day a week over the next six weeks? Because we don't we can't really take everyone off of the the work to do it. How do you deal with that? Do you just say it doesn't work? Or do you have some kind of magic solution? Yeah. Um well, um, so much is context dependent, but usually my answer is, you know, if you, if you're thinking along those terms, you probably don't have a problem that's well suited for a design sprint. <laughs> Most of the time design sprints are, are going to be used for something where people are really stuck. Right. Um, they haven't been able to make progress or there's, there's this new project and they know that, um, it's going to require, you know, some, the brain trust, if you will. And the only way to assemble them is to actually make an intentional and, and, uh, and make it happen. And so most of the time, if I encounter people that are wishy-washy on it, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have some conversations just to, just to see if their, their concerns are rooted in reality or they're just nervous. But um, usually that's an indicator that it's just not a good time for a design sprint, to be honest. And the, the thing is, is like as a steward of the process, um, I'd much rather convince someone not to do it right. um, rather than uh, have the name get tarnished. Because yeah. there's just so many um, design sprint training classes and so many people just spitting out sprint masters that I think that um, you know, there's definitely a – I even heard a CEO once said, you know, my problem is that I just don't know when to do a design sprint. It's <laughs> like, man, like that's a weird problem to have. <laughs> so you worked directly with Google Ventures, right? So you you kind of learned from the the horse's mouth, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, the, early on, the fascinating thing to me was what are, the things that they were really adamant about, but weren't in the book. <laughs> okay, it, that's why your book exists, right? Because, well, well, yeah. I don't even talk about most. Of, a lot of that stuff is um, stuff we'll put in, and like when our design sprint trainings, yeah. and even Jake trains them. But the thing is, is like the book has to be packaged up with stories. Yeah. It has to be stuff that anybody can can kind of grok and understand. And so there's a certain level of nuance that you will pick up on when you're actually doing these things together. And it's like, oh wow. That's really fascinating. Why that you know it's super important and um, like come and spill the beans. Like even the seven person thing. Well, like the seven person thing, right? Like it's in the book, but like man, they were like really adamant about it, and like that's something that you could gloss over. And I even have clients all the time want to send twenty people right, right. to a design sprint, and they've read the book. And if they didn't have me, they would be sending. They would be doing it with twenty people. Right, right. And um, and so there's, I think there's things that they learned from not only being just amazing designers mm-hmm. and you know like you were saying they were they're skilled in the craft you know they've done it they've done this and they're professionals but they also on top of that had the opportunity a very unique opportunity at google ventures to go do this week after week after week after week and refine yeah. it and dial it in and so there's just certain things you just pick up just observing them that um and I, I there there are probably things that um I'm not even articulating you know I I, it, I just know that um 
there's a certain level of confidence after having just observed and worked with them kind of coming out of it. And so it's like, it's hard to even put that to words sometimes. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? It's, it can sometimes seem really pedantic, that stuff. I mean, it's the same as, you know, facilitating good workshop, you know, tiny things make a big difference. What about the desktop kind of, uh, flip up post-its? Uh, no, well, these are the post-it notes that are zigzagged. Um, and so they're designed to go in the holder. And oh, so, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, oh, no, the concertina so that ones. means every other one, the, the sticky's on the bottom and the thing's just flipped over. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh, facilitator woes, man. <laughs> I, I know. I used, to, uh, I used to throw those across the room all the time at, uh, at Fjord when we got those. There was always kind of a couple snuck in there. I used to hate them. The, the show is called Power of Ten. It's after the Eames film, Powers of Ten. It's all about uh, this film about uh, the relative size of things in the universe. And so I ask all the guests, what one small thing that is really well designed or needs to be redesigned has or would have an outsized effect on the world? Well, this is very top of mind for me right now with the uh, COVID-19 issues that are circulating around. But um, I think the interaction, the online meeting interaction, Mm. Zoom has like leapfrogged everyone. And I think other meeting systems started to catch up, but I definitely felt a massive difference between just quality and consistency once, once they, and that's a testament to their growth. Right. And Mm. while there's still, you know, there might be people out there to complain about it, but I can tell you before it, because I lived in those days with like other companies, which I won't name, but like, you know, just, just horrible connection issues. And and part of it's too connectivity is improved, et cetera. But, but the thing is there's still a lot of fidelity issue of, um, as a facilitator, I cannot tell who is engaged and who isn't. Um, I can't build the same level of rapport. And so, you know, if there are, if there are ways to gauge sentiment, um, of people in the room more deeply, um, level of engagement, um, to be able to easily call on people. Um, there's definitely, there's just a, there's a depth that's missing. That's, that really is detrimental to, to doing virtual workshops and, um, I think with Zoom and Mural, we get really close, but there's still a missing element that um, that I'm really hungry for. And, um, and there's some incremental things, like I've been feeding Mural lots of ideas because I get really excited about this notion of being able to facilitate the uh, digital space like I could a real wall. Um, and there's just things that I can do. I can walk up to the wall and do some very dr- dramatic things that I can't do um, digitally. And um, and so, but I think ultimately um, the 10Xer would be to have real, some way to have a real connection and um, to be able to like understand deeply what's, um, to just deeply connect with people in, in this virtual meeting set, um, environment. Yeah, reading the room is, is one of the real arts of facilitation, isn't it? Well, we're coming up to time. People can find the book on beyondtheprototype.com. Voltage Control is voltagecontrol.com. Uh, and you're amazingly on Twitter as the, well, I said the Doug, but you said the D-U-G. That's right. <laughs> you're going to be the yeah. one. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, as we talked about my uh, history as a musician and um Back in the day, it was the it was the mid '90s, and I was in a, a math rock band. If anyone knows what math rock a is, a math rock band. And What's that? Yeah, I was in a uh, math rock. Is um, kind of uh, it's um, maybe to the untrained ear it would sound kind of like hardcore or, or punk or something, but right. it's a very specific genre where it's um, very angular sounding, almost robotic at times, and. The reason it's called math rock is because it involves a lot of counting because you're using really odd time signatures. 
Um, uh, okay. Yes. And it's uh, so a lot of stops and starts. You know, the drummer is like grabbing the cymbals, so it's muted. And anyway, it's uh, it was fun stuff. I really enjoyed it. And um, we, I, my band, um, Imperial, uh, was, uh, and you know, the fun thing about Imperial is we used to have loops of stormtroopers and we'd have stacks of TVs and these loops of stormtroopers would be playing <laughs> while we were behind us. Um, and, uh, we were, we were on tour with one of our pal bands called Regraped and, um, we were all very drunk one night and decided to give ourselves hip hop nicknames. And so I was christened the DUG. Uh-huh. Very good. That, that sounds, that, that band and everything just sounds very mid nineties. It's, uh, it's very yes. good. <laughs> So people can find you as the DUG on Twitter. Douglas, thank you so much for being my guest on Power of Ten. You're welcome. It's been great to be here. Thanks for listening to Power of Ten. If you want to learn more about other shows on the This Is HCD network, go to thisishcd.com, where you'll find ProdPod with Adrian Tan, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Ethnopod with Jay Hasbrook, Bringing Design Closer and Getting Started in Design with Jerry Scullion, and Talking Shop with Jerry, myself, and some of the other hosts. You'll also find the transcripts and links to this show, and you can sign up to our newsletter or join our Slack channel and connect with other designers around the world. My name's Andy Polane. You can find me at polane.com or apolane on Twitter. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.